Good morning, Grace. It's good to be with you this morning. Our passage today is Mark chapter 12. We're preaching through Mark's gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along with us, just put your hand up and we'll get a Bible in your hands. There we go, a couple there. One over there, we have ushers with Bibles. And uh, if you just forgot, you know, maybe just get it, turn it to the back. But if you don't have a Bible at home, please uh, keep it. We would love uh, for you to have God's word um, with you. As the song says, we need God every hour and his word abides with us. We're preaching through the Gospel of Mark and now we're on chapter 12 and this brings us to a parable. And so Jesus is going to tell this parable uh, from verses one to 12 and we're gonna see an interesting reaction. Let's read the passage together and then we'll pray. Mark 12, one. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would illuminate your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, may your word speak to us in the darkest corners of our hearts. May your word find landing on soft soil this morning so that we might bear good fruit. We thank you for Christ's righteousness, our one hope. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Again, we've been preaching through Mark's gospel, and so if uh, this is your first time to grace, uh, it's, it's good and it's good for you and maybe good for everybody else to do just a little bit of quick review to refresh our minds with where we've been uh, on this journey along with Jesus. 
So briefly, some, some background, most recent events in the life of Jesus as told through Mark. Uh, the first thing we've been noticing is that Jesus keeps predicting his death and resurrection. If you've been keeping score, he's done it three times now, okay? Uh, second, most recently, he has finally made his way to Jerusalem in order for that to happen. And he has entered Jerusalem uh, so that that prophecy will be fulfilled. As soon as he entered Jerusalem, he headed for the temple and promptly cleared it out because of the wickedness that was being done there. And as a, an attendant uh, to that, cursed the fig tree as a living object lesson. Israel here had all the foliage of righteousness, but none of its fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree as a sign against them. And then finally, Jesus comes challenging the religious leaders in Jerusalem on their own turf. He's exposing their religious hypocrisy and their spiritual unfruitfulness. And he's just getting warmed up. Last week we saw they challenged his authority. And he had quite the answer to them. And now he is going to give more and more of a clear answer of who he is and why he came. And to make that happen. This morning's parable, in many ways, encapsulates all of these things in a, in a single lesson. So we're going to walk through the parable and talk about its significance, its meaning, and then hopefully we will uh, have time for application and ask an important question of ourselves. What will we do with the Son of God? So let's jump into the parable and uh, just some preliminary observations about this one. This is a unique parable, number one, uh, because Jesus actually wants his audience to understand it. You notice elsewhere, Jesus, they ask him, why does he speak in parables? And he says, so that hearing they might not hear, seeing they might not understand or perceive. Okay? To, to shield deep spiritual truths uh, from the wise, the so-called wise. But this time, Jesus wants the wise, the religious leaders, to understand precisely what he is talking about. So it's unique in that regard. Uh, the second thing, and you probably noticed this as we were reading through it, it's an ironic parable because at the end, the reaction of the religious leaders against it mirrors exactly what the parable says they're going to do. They know it's about them. They don't like it. And they respond in kind. Talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) And so third, this parable is also a prophecy. Uh, And it is a frightening prophecy, but one that I think will actually be of great encouragement to us as believers, as a church, and especially if you're a Gentile. Do we have any Gentiles in the house? Anybody? A Gentile? Yeah. Most of your hands should be up, I think. I don't know that for certain, but yeah. So let's uh, walk into this parable and see what it has for us. Let's remember, a parable is simply a 
earthly story with a spiritual or a theological meaning. It's usually told with a realistic, real life, down to earth kind of scenario so that uh, you know, a, a wide variety of people can understand it. It's in very simple, easy to understand. A child could understand it perhaps, okay? much like a fable. Um, and let's just uh, be, be careful though with parables in terms of just when we read parables and interpret them. Uh, Parables are highly symbolic, but it doesn't follow that in the parable, allegory, symbolism, that every item in the parable has a, uh, a strict symbolic reference. Does that make sense? Uh, a parable, as one commentator put it, it's like a furnished room, okay? And we put a couch in it, we put a TV set in it, we put a lamp in there. Why? To communicate it's a living room as opposed to a kitchen. Does that make sense? To situate where we are, okay? And so we just, we want the big picture here. Sometimes the details matter, but we don't want to microanalyze the microfibers on the couch and see what those all mean. Does that, does that make sense, okay? So let's look at Jesus' setup of this uh, parable here in verses one and two. He's talking about a man who plants a vineyard. He's an investor, Now this would have been a very relatable example to the crowds because in the Roman Empire at this time and in Palestine at the time, uh, tenant farming was quite common. A wealthy landowner would have a piece of property, would develop it so that it could become productive in some way, in this case as a vineyard to produce wine, to produce grapes, raisins, whatnot, and he would lease it out to farmers who would actually live on the land, work the land, earn a living, and then pay back a portion of the proceeds. So this would have been readily understandable by the common folk, as they say. But the details that Jesus gives here about a wine press and a watchtower and even later a hedge are actually clues to his main audience, which are the religious leaders. What he is doing right from the get-go, he is signaling, I'm talking about you guys and you guys know what I'm referring to. Now, if you have a study Bible, you might see a reference to Isaiah 5. Let's go back to Isaiah 5. Keep your hands in Mark, but let's look at what Isaiah 5 has to say. Jesus is actually uh, dusting off an old uh, parable told by the prophet Isaiah and he's sort of retooling it. We might call this uh, Vineyard Parable 2.0. Isaiah chapter five, just the first seven verses will give us a really good backdrop and the teachers of the law would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to by those buzzwords uh, that he uses furnishing that room. Starting in verse one, Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad ones? 
Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is a bombshell parable. If you remember the context of Isaiah, this prophecy was given right before Israel is sent into exile by Babylon and their temple is obliterated. And interestingly, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to talk about their temple and its destruction, how every stone will be thrown down. And the real stinger, of course, is that Isaiah's parable speaks of the unfruitfulness of the vineyard, and that's exactly where Jesus is going this time. With a few twists, he inserts vine workers, tenant farmers, and points the finger squarely at them. So once again, this Jesus claiming to be the Messiah thing seems a little odd. It's a real head scratcher for those who are in leadership in Israel. He seems to be taking everybody backwards. He's pronouncing doom and judgment and quoting prophecies that involve uh, turning things over to the Gentiles. But let's see where he goes with this. Uh, this landowner sends his servants to collect rent, as was the custom. And the first one, they treat shamefully, they beat him and turn him away. Now, one commentator tells us that in the ancient world at this time, many landowners actually hired assassins to collect rent when it was denied. It would, have been, it would have been very common in a situation like this for the landowner to say, all right, get them, Brutus, okay? Let's have a shakedown. I want my money, okay? Could have made short work. But what does this landowner do? He sends another servant and another servant and another servant. Let's not miss the patience of the landowner. And we should be seeing this now. The landowner is God dealing with Israel. And what Jesus is saying is, look how patient God has been with you. Since Isaiah's prophecy, he has sent you messenger after messenger, servant after servant. These servants represent the prophets, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the like warning God's people time and again, seeking for fruit, seeking for righteousness, seeking justice and finding none. And notice the response of the tenants over the course of this passage. They become increasingly violent. Their wickedness feeds more wickedness. 
And their recklessness is only matched by the apparent recklessness of the landowner who keeps throwing slaves around like they're, like they're nothing. Sending servant after servant who gets beaten or killed. Let's not miss the profound patience and forbearance of God as pictured here. And Jesus seems to be underscoring that. Look how patient God continues to be to you. So this mounting injustice finally comes to the ultimate injustice. And what is this ultimate injustice? He sends his son, his only son, that's implied, he only had one person left, one servant left, his son. And it says, a beloved son. And Mark, who doesn't waste words, no doubt threw that in there, recorded those words of Jesus to remind us of what he said in Mark chapter one, verse 11, back at John's baptism. John, the last of the prophets, warning God's people, and there he is, he's baptized Jesus, and the voice from the Father comes, and for all to hear, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. But they don't listen to him. And instead, we see the vileness of their conspiracy uh, become almost unbelievable. Hey, let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. Now this seems insane, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that'll get us the, the vineyard, right? Well, actually, in the ancient world, there were provisions for something like what we would today call squatter's rights. That if there was no legal heir to a piece of land, if the landowner died, the property would go to the tenants. After all, they had worked it, made it profitable. Ownership, nine-tenths of the law. So their plan isn't that crazy. But of course, when we step back and see what this is an analogy for, it is crazy because they are messing with God himself. And Jesus is saying nothing short of, look who I am, I am God's son. And so they kill him. They throw him outside the vineyard, maybe to make it look like an accident, and then they can get the goods. And then Jesus pauses to ask a question. He asks the question of his listeners. He asks the question of the audience because all through this parable, there has been or should be a growing snowballed sense of outrage. This is outrageous. This is a gross injustice. And I wanna, I wanna pause on this real quick. When we talk about justice, we talk about injustice, um, that, that word is thrown around a lot today. Uh, if, if you venture onto Facebook every now and again, uh, like I do, um, notice the kinds of things people post. Once you clear away all the cat videos <laughs> and pictures of food <laughs> and feet, um, that's weird, sorry, that's just weird. 
But once you clear all that stuff away and, you know, personal updates, notice how many people, myself included, we post things that have to do with our sense of justice. Think about how many things get shared, liked, all of that, that all really reveal deep down we have the need for justice. There is something deep in the human condition that cries out for justice. And of course, we don't always cry out for actual justice, and that's why there are a lot of Facebook uh, flaming uh, back and forth, a lot of heat and no light sometimes. But look what it says about us. And Jesus is telling this parable to bring that out in his audience, and we should feel that too. Think about the most unjust thing you can think about that people are posting on Facebook. You've probably got something in mind right now. You've got a picture, okay. You might think of a flag. That can mean a lot of things these days. Um, It might involve children. It might involve, who knows? Think about that thing. Like This is the ultimate injustice. And then think of the omnipotent, eternal Lord of glory, the spotless Lamb of God, in whom was no sin. He fulfilled the law with perfect righteousness. He overflowed in perfect love to everyone he encountered. And this man was murdered on trumped up charges by the people he was calling into account, by the real perpetrators of injustice. The crucifixion of Jesus, the killing of the Son of God is history's most unjust act, period. We've gotta have that in our minds. If we are to see the injustice in the world in its proper perspective, if we are to fight injustice, we need to see injustice from God's eyes because that's going to give us the gospel and that's gonna give us the tools to address injustice. So, Jesus says, ask this question, and they respond. Um, Now, they don't respond in Mark's gospel, but we're told in Matthew and Luke's gospel that the crowd shouts some things, okay? Uh, Matthew's crowd shouts its answer right after his question, what's gonna happen? And they say, he will put a wretched end to those wretches, right? He's gonna kill them. Jesus answers in the affirmative. In Luke's gospel, uh, they respond after Jesus says what's gonna happen, and they say, may this never be. In other words, don't let this, don't let this happen. This is horrible. That would be unjust. Both responses show the injustice, but who's the parable for? It's for the perpetrators, and they know that they've been nailed right in the heart. He knows what they are scheming already. So, the vineyard is going to be turned over to someone else, another to others. 
Uh, Matthew's gospel elaborates. You don't need to turn there right now, but this is Matthew 21, uh, 43, and 44, if you want to write that down and look at it later. Uh, Luke 20 is is the other uh, account. Jesus elaborates there. He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, this is an odd mixing of metaphors. We've got a vineyard and we've got stone. And he says something about, haven't you read the scriptures about this stone? Why is that in there? Well, Jesus is kind of teasing them here. The stone that the builders rejected there, Mark 10, Mark 12, 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. What, what part of scripture was he quoting that they had most certainly read? Your Bible might have a note. It was Psalm 118, Guess what also appears in Psalm 118? Hosanna. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What the crowds were singing to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, that's the same psalm. And Jesus says, haven't you read? Didn't you read the part that came before that? Yes, you're receiving me as king, but don't stumble over me is what he's saying. I'm going to be rejected. I will be the capstone, the cornerstone, the foundation of a new building. The builders rejected it. The religious leaders who built an edifice that in the end stood for greed and theft this temple that had become a den of robbers. And Jesus said, I will be rejected, but I will be the cornerstone of a new building. Let's look real quick. I, I don't usually like to venture too far outside the text, but I feel like I need to here. First Peter chapter two. Peter reflects on this at length and fills in the gaps for, uh, for us. First Peter 2, starting in verse 4, it's talking about Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, the living stone. See, that's the sequel to this parable is that this stone that the builders rejected, this son who was killed and thrown outside the vineyard, he has come back to life. And Jesus predicted this. He predicted not just his death, but his resurrection. And Peter and the rest of the apostles are here to say he's alive. He's a living stone. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, see, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, 
but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. They stumbled because they disobeyed. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This parable that is a prophecy is really, really dire and has lots of bad news. But if you're a Gentile, it is good news the vineyard would be given to others who would produce fruits of righteousness. Now, I know you might have something in your mind going, wait, what about Israel? Is is God unfaithful to Israel? Guess who has an answer for that? The Apostle Paul. So maybe uh, as you go from this sermon, maybe in your own study and meditation, read Romans 11. Romans 11, just jot that down. And Paul addresses this question. Well, what about Israel? They were, they were hardened so that the Gentiles could, could come in, right? There's good news. And here's the depth of God's mercy. That even the kind of people who crucified the Lord of glory, who killed the Son of God when he came to collect what was his, even they are not beyond God's mercy. Think of Paul himself. Think of before he was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as a young Pharisee in training. Can you put him in this parable? If he had been standing here with his mentors, fellow teachers of the law, he would have had murder in his heart towards Messiah. Because we know later he held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen for proclaiming Christ and he went to prosecute a search and imprisonment of Christ and his followers. But the risen Lord appeared to him and changed his heart and he became the greatest minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations and we are recipients of that grace. So, what does this parable have for us? Let's uh, look at a simple question. Uh, Next slide. What are we to do with God's son? What will we do with God's son? In its most immediate context, this parable is directed at religious leaders. And so, as elders, we need to really wrestle over this one. But that includes deacons, teachers, Sunday school teachers, anybody who disciples another, grace group shepherds, parents with children, anyone in any kind of spiritual leadership or authority, what are you gonna do with Jesus? Are you going to honor and exalt him? Are you going to cast him aside and put him off? And those, if there are any here who don't 
know Christ, who have time and again said no to Jesus, don't bother me. You need to answer this question. I want you to be struck with the patience and forbearance of God the Father who sends servant after servant into his vineyard and harvest fields and his world and says, come, repent. And I want us to see whoever we are, the gospel in this parable. So number one, the thing this parable teaches us is that everybody on earth is God's tenant. We are all tenants of God Almighty. Let me quote from uh, Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian who said this, there is not a square inch of the whole plane of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not proclaim this is mine. It's all his. And we are living on borrowed resources, every one of us. Not just materially, but spiritually. God has put us in a loving world that has abundance of resources. He has lavished wealth upon us. He has met our physical needs. He has given us pleasures and enjoyments. And he gives us the freedom to live and to work. But we are his tenants. We're living on borrowed time. We are tenants, but do we sometimes live like owners? I know I do. Like I own the property. I say, this is my time. This is my money. This is my schedule. These are my people. These are my children. And there's an importance to to claim ownership and responsibility for some things, but let's not miss who really owns it all. We are tenants. We are tenants in God's world. Number two, God is not a disinterested investor. We do not believe in a God of deism who just kind of wound up the world and just sent it spinning. I don't interfere. I give people that free will thing so much so that I I never even do anything. That's appeasing to some uh, people to, to a certain extent, but such a God can't really deal with you and your pain and your suffering. That kind of God is not the kind of God I would trust to deal with injustice. No, God made this world. He invested himself in it and he invested himself in us that we would show forth the praises of him, that we would bear fruit, fruit of the spirit, fruit in keeping with righteousness. Number three, we owe a great debt. We've got back payment of rent due, as one preacher put it. We've got back payment of rent. And guess what? We're already overdrawn. And the credit cards are maxed out. And we are unemployable. We have no means of paying the debt we owe. 
We need to feel our helplessness. Every hour, I need you. We just saying that. We have to believe that. How often do I forget that? If you're like me, it's often. But the good news is, the good news of this parable that is actually nestled within it, his audience are not yet fully aware of how glorious this turnabout will be. But it's here for us in plain view. When the Son of God came demanding payment of the debt and found none, he paid it himself with his own life. Man's injustice could not thwart the justice and righteousness of God. Man's injustice can never swallow up God's justice. The beauty of God's justice is that he takes our wickedness, he takes the worst of human injustice and even takes that and turns it into the greatest of good, the good for us, salvation. Remember, this parable goes with what Jesus said earlier, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, to seek and save that which was lost. And if you believe in me, if you believe I am who I say I am, you will be saved. And I will build a kingdom for you. So, if we reject God's son, then we reject God's solution. Everybody wants a solution to the problem of evil. We all struggle in some way with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Right now, some of you, no doubt, are struggling with suffering, evil, perhaps that has been done to you, perhaps that you have witnessed, it's been done to someone close to you. My family and I have been going through great suffering in the last 24 hours. And I know there will be more of it in the next week. But if we reject Christ, we reject the only satisfactory answer to the problem of evil and suffering. You can't have it both ways. You can't shake your fist at God and say, why am I suffering? Why are all of these evil things happening in the world? Where are you? And at the same time, reject the Son of God who was sent to ultimately fix it all and to turn injustice into justice. And we often fail in those moments to see ourselves as part of the problem of evil. The amazing thing is that God would make the problem of evil his problem. Because we are the authors of that evil. I'm an author of evil on a day-to-day basis. But Jesus came to change my heart. He came to change all of our hearts, one heart at a time, one life at a time, becoming more and more like Jesus more and more loving, 
more and more fruitful, showing kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit, that's what will change a world. And he rose from the dead to conquer death itself so that ultimately death does not have the final say. We always think of the ultimate wickedness as the ultimate evil and suffering as, as death and torture and punishment and all of that. And, and Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to face that. And so if you're upset about the problem of evil, God agrees with you. He was upset enough to send his only beloved son so that you wouldn't have to face his wrath. So that you would not have to face what we all deserve. So, to those of you here who have never walked with Christ, or maybe you've been putting it off, or maybe you're not sure about this Christ, I plead with you. Let's see the patience and forbearance of God. He is continuing to send you messengers. When will you say yes to the Son of God? Maybe it will be today. It can absolutely be today. Cry out to him. To us as a church, what are we doing with the Son of God? Are we honoring him? Are we keeping him focused at the center of all of our ministries? Is he Lord Are we submitting to his authority? Are we living and growing in grace? Are we recognizing more and more areas of our hearts and our lives that we need to take the me label off of and stick God's on it and say, Jesus, yes, that too is yours. I've got a whole attic full and probably rooms I'm not even aware of. And it's hard to grow in that, but it's good to grow in that. And it is a joy to grow in that with you all as a church. Let's continue to provoke one another to love and good deeds and keep the Son of God, Christ, central, no matter what the world does. Because the world is rejecting our chief cornerstone. But let them do what they will. We will follow Christ and we will proclaim him And Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hate you because they hated me first and they hated me because I testified that their deeds were evil. People don't like to be told that they're helpless and that they need somebody else. If you want to be saved, all you have to do is say, I am helpless. I'm helpless to save myself. I'm helpless to live this life out in righteousness before my family, before my coworkers, before my church boils down to faith. Let's pray together and Walt will lead us in some scripture and some meditation. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your word would bear fruit here among us. Show us the places of our hearts where we need to allow the Son of God access knowing that he has paid the price. We praise you that you have brought us near, we who are once far off. 
And Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who have not yet put their faith in Christ, that they would turn to him now. Lord, that they would talk to someone about this. That we could rejoice and embark on this great journey together. We thank you for your word and your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.